questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight we discuss how ancient myths are still with us. The hero's journey monomyth is at the core of stories worldwide among indigenous people, the ancients, and our modern society. We'll explore a deeper root for this monomyth by looking at how hunter-gatherers viewed themselves within the natural and spiritual worlds through Paleolithic cave art from 40,000 years ago. Tonight's guest is a biological time author and naturalist who proposes that select cave paintings are fundamental pieces in the human journey to self-realization, the foundation of written language, and a record of biological knowledge that irrevocably impacted some of the artistic styles, religious practices, and stories that are still with us. He will address a profound archaeological elephant in the room by opening up an uncharted place in our history, which points to the cultural ancestors of mankind. He claims his work will change the idea of who you think you are. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at VeritasRadio.com. Tonight's special guest is Bernie Taylor, an independent naturalist and author whose research explores the mythological connections and biological knowledge among prehistoric, indigenous, and ancient peoples. His latest book is titled Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. His website is BeforeOrion.com. I'm Bernie Taylor, joins us today. Hello, Bernie, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Howdy, Mel. Glad to be on the show. Glad to have you. Well, first of all, the big question I have is, why, how, and when did you start researching all of this? Well, I kind of fell into it, like like most things. You can't go searching for something that no one knows exists. Um, there's no path. And my quest started with a previous book, Biological Time, which which looked at how plants and animals are timed. How does this? How do the salmon um, know when to run up the streams and spawn? They're earlier, later from one area to the next, but they're always earlier, late together. Um, and same thing with the migrations of, of wild, you know, waterfowl, geese, and ducks, and so on. And I explored that concept, and I looked at the same uh, migrations and movements of deer and elk, and looked at the data from the primary literature and so forth, and borrowed from um, fish and wildlife agencies. And I wrote a look, bio- book, Biological Time. And in that book, I said to myself, you know, someone had to know this. because It wasn't in the, the chronobiological literature, the biological clocks. And so I looked into the, the calendars of hunter-gatherers in North America and in the calendars of the ancients in the Mediterranean. And what I found was their calendars were all about when the, the animals would be at certain places when they would harvest them. Um, and it was incorporated in their calendar. And, and someone said to me, you know, you got to look back further in that there's imagery from the caves of Europe. And I looked at the imagery from – the Lascaux cave in the Dorgon region of France from about 17,000 years ago. And in fact, the, the nomenclature next to the animals um, was exactly the same as the timing of these animals as is depicted um, um, in the uh, – or explained in the, the calendars of hunter-gatherers in the United States, in North America. Um, and so it kind of all fits together, which makes sense because they didn't have Costco's and fast food and they just they can't just drop in for food. If they were late for the food, they starved. If they were too early for the salmon, there was no food um, or maybe, you know, they rounded up a deer or something. But still, they were there specifically for those those animals. 
and I, I, I wrote a book and I did lots of presentations. To, you know, I did the peer-reviewed journal thing. I uh, gave presentations to fish and wildlife agencies and conservation groups and so forth. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and I said to myself, I'm kind of ahead of where everybody else was. And so I said, I'm going to put this aside for 10 years and come back to it. Ten years later, I came back. And I had some ideas that um, kind of expounded on things I'd worked on in the past and all tied to the biological clocks of, of the animals and the cave art. And then when I started looking um, at the images, there had been a whole bunch of images that had been redated, um, much older than the, the cave at Lascaux. And one of them is in the El Castillo cave 40,000 years ago. It was called the Gallery of Discs. And this is 10 meters across. You can imagine. It's huge. So about 30 feet. And on this panel, it's it's roughly brown and or t- and tan, and down streaming down the middle of these dots. Each dot is about the size of your hand, um, and there's 90 or so in total. Kind of looks like a tree, but it runs across the middle of the panel. And I looked at that and I started counting the discs just like everybody else does, and and I reasoned to myself that you know in, in Paleolithic art, the most common character is a horse. It's typically a pregnant mare, maybe on this huge panel. It's 10 meters across. There could be a pregnant mare. So I started looking for the pregnant mare. Um, and I didn't find it until three years later. But the first thing I saw pretty quick was an elephant. And I was like absolutely amazed. Um, and it was it was different from there. There were elephants in, Af- in uh, Europe at that time. But this is not was not that type of elephant. Had The head structure was um, typical of a um, African elephant. And then I quickly saw um, a lion with a mane, which is also not typical of European art, and some other characters. And I contacted a friend from my distant past in my early 20s, or actually someone I met, an acquaintance. Um, I'm 53 now. His name is George Schaller. And George Schaller is uh, um, widely acclaimed as the world's foremost wildlife biologist. And George, um, he is the mentor of Jane Goodall and everybody you could possibly imagine um, in the history of wildlife biology. And I contacted him via email and, you know, he said, you know, you know, kind of busy. And he was he was off to Afghanistan for snow leopards or something. Um, and he's you know, he gave me some names to contact and I contacted them. There's no response. I went back to George and said, hey, George, there's no response. He said, you know, if you send me some stuff, I'll look at it, but I'm not going to write anything because he's busy saving big cats around the world. And so George looked at things. We went back and forth on the elephant. We really couldn't determine what kind of elephant it was. But as we're doing this, other images emerged. It ultimately an image of a giraffe emerged. And which was the showstopper, because when we have a giraffe, we're not in Europe anymore because there were no giraffes in Europe during that time period. And this particular giraffe has its young, its its youth wrapped around its neck. Um, And these red discs become the camouflage. You can imagine those go across the panel. So the the giraffe is actually laying, is kind of standing on its side, horizontal across the panel. And because it's a 10 meter panel, it's actually a life-size giraffe, which is fascinating. And once once we hit that, we realized that many of these other animals that we had found that were kind of iffy here or there, and they were um, African animals. And on one end of the panels is African animals, and on the other end there's European animals. And there's a space in the middle where we find a dolphin, a crab, um, and some other um, sea animals. Is a, a, a seal, for example. And then we have this character above them who's swimming. So he's he's swimming from Europe to Africa. Uh, and that was the that's where George and I um, the road we went down and we, it just asked all these questions jumped out because, number one, I was sort of interested in animals, animal timing and that sort of stuff. 
and this was this was a, a story. Um, and there's there's a, there's a, two other characters of, of an older man speaking to the year the year of apprentice, and the apprentice has these huge wide well, eyes. Which I don't need to interrupt the, you, but let's sorry. go step by step. The giraffe. How did they know that giraffes existed? Was it that they actually visited Africa, or how how did that happen? Well, if you told if you if if you said to someone who had never seen a giraffe, um, just describe what a giraffe looks like, and they would have draw a picture. It probably looked like anything like a giraffe because it's an unusual right. animal. So this person must have seen a giraffe in Africa, and not only did they not only see the giraffe, but they they recognize these nuances of the giraffe that the young can actually wrap around its neck, and they have the horns and the ears of both the mother and the juvenile giraffe, um, and so. So this at this moment, this becomes the first evidence that someone from Europe had connected with someone from Africa. We talk about people migrating around the the, the Mediterranean and so forth, and um, but this this was uh, but there's no we do that via DNA. We actually have no proof that people had we previously had no proof that people migrated before before in Europe and Africa. And even evangelicals will talk about the Garden of Eden and all this sort of stuff that um, you know Africans are separate. Um, and so this shows that people, at least one individual, had gone back and forth. And he tells he transposes these images of what he saw onto this cave wall from thirty four thousand at least thirty four thousand years ago. And so from an archaeological standpoint. It's a showstopper, um, and you, you undoubtedly one end of this panel is Africa, and the other end is Europe, where there's there's a horse and there's an Iberian lynx, which are um, unique to those places. Um, and so, yeah, it's um, it changed it changed the world in that moment. The world, of course, hadn't seen that. Um, this is you know uh, me, George, and two other people had seen some of these images. About a year later, I gave a presentation. I, I gave a, um, um, a reading in a writer's group with, with about eight people and of the first chapter. And I said to them, you know, there's, there's 15 people in the world that have seen this. We're going to keep this confidential. And one of the guys said, you mean 15 including us, right? <laughs> and he was right. And this was pretty much kept close until the point that it was released um, through the ebook and released the ebook all around the world in, in one day. Um, and it's caused quite um, a bit of commotion. Um, for a number of reasons. One is that millions of people had seen this gallery of disc with this gallery of disc and focused on the red disc and didn't see the animals behind them, which is because it's an optical effect. It's a hallucinogenic. It's it's um, um, it hypnotizes you. Uh, so that's one reason. And the second is that it it drops all these theories that people you know migrated you know a few de- a few steps per year to get out of Africa into Europe. Well, people were going back and forth, and there was at least visitation, if not trade. Um, and then we have images of Homo sapiens. We have the teacher speaking the ear of the apprentice. We have a, this man swimming. We have this, this hero character holding a club. Um, we have two female characters, and one has braided red hair. The man with the club has red hair as well. Um, and these these are people that have distinctly a European look, as well as a look that we find currently find in Morocco or Western North Africa among the so-called Amazon or Berber people, um, whose roots um, – predate Europe, European, modern, or at least ancient European um, conquests. Um, and so we we have these people that we, you know, we see what we looked like 34,000 years ago, which pushes back the, the effigy of humans by 10,000 years. 
And these 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 thirty four thousand euros effigies are very clear what we look like. And there's we're not just um, you know we're not we're not bubbling caveman dragon you know our kin into the into the cave. We're emotional beings. We picture this giraffe with her juvenile wrapped around her neck. We have a, a Iberian lynx whose whose kitten pushes up against the rough at her chin. Um, the cave artists weren't hunting these animals. They were learning from them. And they were especially learning from the females because most of the characters on this panel are females and females nurturing their young. While the husbands are out there hunting and gathering. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's usually that's like how, how it works in the wild. Um, in most cases, the, the, the female takes care of the young where the man, the, the father of whatever the species is, has, has already disappeared. A quick parenthesis. I don't mean to bring back, because I want to focus on the newest book, but you caught my attention with the other book, which I haven't read. I've always been curious about behavior of animals. I, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by zoology. And especially you mentioned the salmons, the fact that they don't, sure. they, they just come back to the stream where they were born against the current or turtles and sea life that comes back to lay eggs where they were born. How does that happen? Well, more importantly is actually the timing. Um, but sea turtles and, and, and salmon have electromagnetic crystals in their heads, which an, uh, allow them to navigate along electromagnetic uh, right. fields. And whales do the same thing. Um, and so the, the more key thing is how do they do it in, t- in their synchronized timing? And it's, it's pretty simple. If you go to Alaska during the summertime, the lights are on. Uh, the, you know the, the natural lights are on, and you're up. You might you could be up for two days before you go to sleep. You've lost your sense of time uh, because of the light, and then ultimately you're going to crash. Or if you get to some dark room where there's uh, there's no light, um, your the melatonin in your brain in your pineal body will will kick in and put you to sleep. Well, salmon. Um, are just the opposite of us, they actually migrate in the darkness and they slow down in the light. And so the light for them is not just the sun, it's the moon. And so the moon um, has a light, has light and dark period, the full moon versus the full moon, the new moon versus the full moon and so forth. And salmon actually migrate during the darker phases at night during the darker phases of the moon. And they slow down around the full moon and the, the daytime. And so the, the so the moon is out of sync. The moon is out of sync with the sun. The, the cycle of the moon is twenty nine days. Twelve times twenty nine and a half is twelve days short of three sixty five. So if a new moon migration in year one um, could be on January thirteenth, it'll be on January first the next year. And that's ca- that's why the, the, the migrations of salmon are early later from one year to the next. Um, and the and that that is the the essence of the Native Americans calendars. And that transposes from migratory um, birds, deer, elk, and not only just the migrations of elk in, in, the, in, the, mid, in the West migrate, as do some species of deer. Um, but they, they not only have the migrations, but they have when the, when the, the, the deer drop their antlers and um, when they're pregnant and so forth. And in, in, the, in the Northern Midwest, it's all about the waterfowl and in and, and, and Saskatchewan and Metelma in Canada. And their the calendars of the, of the indigenous people there was the complete cycle of the, of the waterfowl. Um, and there it was a lunar calendar which shifted one year or the next for the same reasons. Um, so that's how that's what biological time was about. And I explore the concept of how indigenous and ancient peoples 
work on this timing um, and how they knew to be there when the animals would be there versus waiting for weeks. Hopefully the food would show up. Um, and that I also carry that concept into before Orion because I, I looked at these animals in the panel and I can actually there's a there's a fledging eagle, which tells it, Golden Eagle at that which is a mid-June time period in that part of the world. There's not – this is Iberian with links with a kid, very young kitten. Um, again, we have a mid-June time period. So we can go through these animals in the panel, and we can date this – we could date – or just time it to tell us when it was, which is a fascinating concept. And we, you would do that today. If you looked out – if you were to paint a picture and you went out, out in your front porch, um, you'd be painting something with green. You probably wouldn't be doing a winter time scene. And you might be painting, you know, some blue jays and, you know, maybe some mosquitoes, a, a squirrel running around, that sort of stuff. And um, a deer who, who um, you know, a male deer that has very small antlers because of this time of year. Well, these, these Paleolithic artists did the same thing. They depicted what they saw at that time in their, in their universe. Um, and... So it's it's a time and place essence. So this biological clock perspective that I had from the past carried forth into this book, but it it took a huge huge twist because it brought me into mythology, which I was previously not too um, too savvy about, um, and so I really had to look at the you know the mythological literature, which took me to Young, Carl Young, and Joseph Campbell. Which is very important, of course. And when I think of these caves, they're all over the world. And there's some similarities sometimes in the pigmentation that they use. Have you found similarities between caves that whose inhabitants were not supposed to know each other, which not supposed to be connected? Yes. There's, um, well... The the actual drawings on the cave are different, but the mythology is the same, and that's important. So in Native Americans, for example, they, they lived in Berengia for 10,000 years before they came down into the, onto the Great Plains. And in Berengia, um, they didn't have huge resources for rock art, and whatever rock art they did use is now covered by um, ice and snow. And Berengia wasn't sh- – Bering Strait, it was a huge landmass that they lived on. So whatever they have there is now gone. And when they traveled south, they lost those um, those animals that they saw up there. So um, in the Midwest, the Native Americans weren't etching seals, for example, um, or a salmon because they didn't exist in their environment. But what they did is they kept stories, um, core stories of the, the essence of what they saw. Um, and one of the stories that we find is this um, – the cosmic hunt of Ursa Major, the bear. And we find in the Paleolithic images, we find this, this bear. And in the, in the springtime, she's, she's moving along her small cubs and um, right sort of along the horizon during the uh, midsummer, the, the cubs stand and she stands, which is same as Ursa Major, just sort of tips in the sky sideways. It's sort of, it's, it becomes um, vertical. And then going into the winter, uh, as Ursa, as the bear goes into the den, Ursa Major turns around, so kind of turns around and becomes horizontal again um, in the night sky. It goes around that circle, and then it disappears into the into the night because the bear has disappeared into the, into the cave. Well, we can find this image in the Paleolithic caves, the two Paleolithic caves in Europe, 
but we also find it in the mythology um, in, in, in ancient Greece, and we find it in Native Americans. Fundamentally, the same story. As far as as far east as the Housatonic um, Indi- Indians in and the Micmacs and so on in the, um, the. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com because you don't want to believe you want to know subscribe now to listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material proceed to the veritas plus member section or join the veritas plus family by subscribing click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com don't forget to visit the veritas store for focused life force energy get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it, because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.